The religious left more often flexes its muscles through the power of protest. They're very good at enacting change through demonstrations and activism and organizing. That is something that they excel at. And it's one of the more powerful parts of the progressive coalition when it comes to activism. That is where their, their expertise lies. And so they do include millions of voters, basically about three quarters of the Democratic Party identify as religious in some capacity. And even that extra quarter, which is the religiously unaffiliated, although they don't claim one religious tradition, many of those people in that religiously unaffiliated category actually do pray daily or they attend worship pretty regularly. So the percentage of people who could potentially be moved, inspired by, or activated by the religious left is, is the majority of the Democratic Party. But that looks very different depending on which issue they're organizing around. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. For decades, the political influence of faith has been seen in the might and the dominance of the religious right. A new book from Religion News Service political correspondent Jack Jenkins called American Prophets charts the so-called religious left. Beliefs producer Jay Woodward and I spoke with Jack about his new book and the emergence of a powerful new political identity. Jack, Jay, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure, Bill. Thanks. At first, my thought was, oh, this is another book about the religious right. But no, it's a book about the religious left, which is much more interesting. If I could, Jack, how big is the religious left? How different is it in organizational size from uh, the religious right? What about just the metrics? This is a, a helpful question to ask at the top because it is decidedly different than the religious right. When we talk about the religious right, we're usually referring to this entity that was built over the course of decades by a series of you know, primarily evangelical Christians, um, Christian leaders and organizations. And those groups uh, had a running um, trend of kind of organizing around central uh, organizations and leaders, right? So it was very kind of this top-down traditional machine politics structure that kind of created the religious right we know today. And so they, they tended to do a few things well. And one of those is that they were very successful at kind of edging out their opponents in the courts. And they were also very successful at um, showing up in the ballot box and kind of punching above their weight on election day, you know, basically voting in higher percentages in the electorate than, you know, the number of people that they actually have in the American population. The religious left is decidedly different than that. It does have specific sub-demographics that, that do show up on election day. For instance, Black Protestants in particular have proven to be a powerful part of the Democratic coalition, and, and you know they are part of the religious left as well. But the religious left is far more diverse than the religious right, both the, um, racially as well as um, religiously. And what you get from that is it's, it's not so much a single voting block that we found that was courted by the religious right, so much as it is a disparate coalition of coalitions, a group of groups that can show up for common cause under certain circumstances. And the religious left more often flexes its mu muscles through the power of protest. They're very good at enacting change through demonstrations and activism and organizing. That is something that they excel at. Uh, and it's one of the more powerful parts of the progressive coalition when it comes to activism. So, you know, that, that is where their, um, their expertise lies. And so you, they do include millions of voters, basically about 
three quarters of the um, Democratic Party identify as religious in some capacity. And even that extra quarter, which is the religiously unaffiliated, although they don't claim one religious tradition, uh, many of those people in that religiously unaffiliated category actually do pray daily or they attend worship pretty regularly. So the percentage of people who could potentially be moved, inspired by, or um, activated by the religious left is is the majority of the Democratic Party. But that looks very different depending on which issue they're organizing around. Who are the big figures in the religious left? We hear all kinds of names on the religious right, but not so much on the left side. Yeah, it's been one of those things where part of that comes from what I was just talking about. Like a lot of these demographics, um, a lot of the, the pieces of the religious left kind of organize among themselves, right? So there there are names that are well known among specific movements. And you did have this period in the 90s in an older version of the religious left where someone like Jim Wallace did become a a relatively well-known name, at least in Washington, D.C. circles. But fast forward to today, and my book kind of focuses in the last 10 to 20 years in terms of the religious left, there are some new names that have started to emerge. Reverend William Barber in particular is arguably the most famous of people who might fall underneath the umbrella of the religious left. He helped run and organize this movement called the Moral Mondays Movement in North Carolina, uh, which was a kind of a protest movement against um, what they saw as a regressive or very deeply conservative state legislator and um, governor. And he helped organize that and has since gone on to help organize this national campaign known as the Poor People's Campaign, which is kind of this reinvigoration of the last activist push that actually Martin Luther King made back in the 60s before he was assassinated. And so you have seen um, William Barber show up on television quite frequently. He's now um, regularly quoted in a lot of mainstream outlets. There was also someone who preceded him, Sister Simone Campbell, who's the head of a, a organization called Network, which is a Catholic social justice lobby. And both William Barber and Sister Simone Campbell have spoken at the Democratic National Convention, Sister Simone Campbell in 2012 and Barber in 2016. You do have within the LGBTQ um, rights space, Bishop Gene Robinson, the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church, is also a relatively well-known name. Outside of that, you really have to kind of get into the weeds to learn where a lot of these activists have started to make their names. For instance, Reverend Tracy Blackman kind of made her name by working with activists in Ferguson during the activism that happened there after the shooting death of Michael Brown. And so she's very well known among Black Lives Matter activists, but might not be very well known among you know some other activists in other spaces. And indigenous activists who were at Standing Rock, for instance, you know, there's no one singular leader that really kind of stood out um, as the voice of that movement. It was it was kind of this mass of different activists from across the country and in um, in and around Standing Rock. And so there are these different names that I kind of highlight in the book. But I think for some people, you know, they'll know a few of them, but I don't think there will be a whole lot of readers who will know all of these names. You talk about uh, already and throughout the book how diverse the religious left is compared perhaps to the religious right. But what are the things that the religious left the progressives hold in common? It kind of varies depending on the era, right? So one thing you do see is this sort of shared ethic, caring for what, you know, different religious traditions, for instance, the Christian tradition calls the least of these or the vulnerable. 
um, the hungry or the immigrant, right? And so you'll see that articulated differently depending on which faith tradition people are hailing from. For instance, one of the movements I chronicle in the book is the new sanctuary movement, which is this instance where um, faith communities open up, you know, their synagogues and their um, sanctuaries to undocumented immigrants who are at risk of deportation and essentially just uh, dare the federal government to raid their church and take them. And the federal government almost always backs down from taking that action, at least. And and you found you know multiple different faith traditions, mosques, Buddhist groups, Jewish groups, and mainline Christian and, and, and Catholic and evangelical groups have all kind of participated in that movement because they have this shared ethic of caring for the stranger. And that will also show up in uh, uh, this kind of uh, belief in caring for those who are at risk and those who are um, disempowered um, seems to be one of the core ethics of the religious left. It is sometimes listed up as a criticism that the religious left is far more concerned with those who are outside of power, those who are affected by power than they are people who are in power. And think some people within the movement will actually say that they wish the religious left was more concerned with the powerful because they would argue that the religious right has done a really good job of attaching themselves to parties and politicians. And the religious left has t- taken the tact of being, quote unquote, prophetic, you know, of taking that position of, of, of shouting or dis, um, disagreeing with power as opposed to attaching themselves to power. So that seems to be a shared ethic as well. But one of the interesting things that's happened in the last few years is that the religious left was really kind of this disparate uh, movements. And with the election of Donald Trump, there is one shared ethic that the, the religious left seems to have now. It's widespread, uniform opposition to his presidency and his policies. And so that really has proven to be a galvanizing force for the religious left is them trying to decry and push back or resist the administration. How big of a factor is the religious left going to be? Will they be a decisive factor? So they could be. Uh, arguably, they already have been. So this past election cycle, this this Democratic primary, religious groups and religious rhetoric turned out to be far more influential than even people like myself, who spend a lot of time looking at the intersection of religion and politics. I mean, you had candidates like Pete Buttigieg, who actually invoked the term religious left frequently. Um, you had people like Cory Booker, who were essentially delivering sermons during the course of his campaign for president. Kamala Harris actually dropped what many would call liberation theology in her announcement speech. Bernie Sanders, actually, you know, he didn't talk about his Judaism back in 2016 that often, but really did invoke it relatively frequently in this last primary season. And of course, Joe Biden actually made some really strategic plays in this area. He His campaign was one of the first to uh, um, hire a faith outreach director specifically for the state of South Carolina. And within months, that was paying dividends by, you know, when he hired that, that faith director in August, by December, they had the endorsement of 100 faith leaders just in that state. So there was a, w- a way in which it has already shown up in a big way in this primary. There's another thing I reference in the book about this event that William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign and his co-chair, Reverend Liz Theo Harris, actually put on where they invited candidates to come. And they actually got all of the front runners and nine different candidates come. And that's really distinctive because just a few weeks later, around that same time, Netroots Nation, this traditionally well-known um, progressive gathering, tried to gather candidates for the forum at their event, and they could only get four. So the religious left has already kind of flexed some muscles, but that's in the primary. The general election is different. And there's, it's a really interesting question as to how democratic politicians are going to engage 
with um, voters heading towards November, because it's not just talking to the base. It's also talking to people who maybe voted Republican the last go round and trying to bring them back across the aisle. And there are many who argue that faith can be a way to reach, say, some you know, somewhat conservative Catholics in the Rust Belt. Similarly, there are some who argue that there are some disaffected evangelicals who, while they traditionally would never vote for um, for anyone who isn't a, a Republican, are just so unhappy with Trump that they might either stay home or possibly even be pulled across the aisle to vote for Joe Biden. And so I think there's a potential for the Democratic Party, if they learn from some of the mistakes that you know analysts say they made in 2016, to really pull more conservative and moderate people of faith into the Democratic Party, at least for this one election. And there are groups in, for, that, that the religious right and the religious left are already fighting over. For instance, Hispanic uh, evangelicals in particular, while they're not a huge part of the electorate, they do have sizable populations in states like Florida, you know, swing states. And they don't fit neatly into the Republican or the Democratic Party. Jay Woodward, do you have some questions? Thanks, Bill. Hi, Jack. Jack, one of the things that struck me about your book is there's a shadow conversation going on you explore about the evolution of activism in the left. And I was intrigued by how you're tracking the relationship between the faith community activism and the secular activism from Antifa, from Black Lives Matter, and how they start to dovetail and overlap. And then specifically, how the faith leaders begin to embrace a more subjugated version of that activism where they're willing to be led by some of their more secular counterparts. This is an interesting thing um, that I'm glad you noticed. And I think it's it speaks to a couple of different issues that have plagued the religious left for a while now. And one of them is that there has often been some level of skepticism or hesitancy on the part of the larger left to fully embrace the religious elements of their own voters because there is this sort of allergic reaction to what they feel might mimic the religious right. In fact, some of the, most of the leaders that I chronicle in my book, with a few exceptions, don't even like the term religious left, including William Barber. They, they actually reject the term outright, thinking that it has too many connections to the religious right, too many connotations with that. And so you did have run into in the past this sort of you know tension, very real tension between secular activists on the left and religious activists on the left who were working for the exact same causes because they were concerned about this encroachment of faith into that sphere. But what you've ended up finding is that is particularly over the past few years, starting in like 2012, 2013, the religious left has kind of tried to re-earn its credibility with some groups, right? So that I mentioned, you mentioned Ferguson and kind of the Black Lives Matter movement and how early on in Ferguson, it was actually some clergy that discouraged many of the young activists from remaining in the streets and continuing to protest in that city um, in the aftermath of the shooting there. And so it took people like Reverend Tracy Blackman to continuously show up to those demonstrations, expressing solidarity with um, the protesters and putting themselves in harm's way in a very real way before they could kind of earn back their street cred. And um, that you saw that again when, you know, faith leaders were marching in Charlottesville where like they had to do some some quick bridge building with these more secular leftist or liberal outfits and, and activist groups. So I, I think what you end up getting from that is that this, you know, the, the left at this point in American history in 2020 is a very diverse group that requires a whole lot of negotiation, arguably far more than you find on the right. Now, 
There are some uh, conservative groups that are you know, ardent atheists or have a more secular mindset. But I do think the kind of dynamic you're talking about, where religious left groups are, are kind of working in tandem with secular activists, as opposed to being the ones who lead these events, right? So, you know, the civil rights movement of the 1960s was in many ways led by the black church. That's not necessarily true of the Black Lives Matter movement at all. You know, Jack, I've been struck by the idea that this is some kind of dynamic, that this is a system that has been sought by the left for a long time. It's a really complex way of operating with very disparate groups. And it's gone by different names over the years, right? Like the Rainbow Coalition, just to grab one. Right. Um, and you talk about intersectionality. And I also noticed that there are places where an interfaith agenda would overlap with these. Is this looking like an evolution of that thing, that thing that has been chased for so long by progressives and by left-leaning activists, a way to synergize all of the efforts and not compete, but develop a broad-based faith in each other? I think an optimistic view that I have heard expressed would argue just what you said, uh, that this is, this is this great evolution. There is this kind of proof of concept embedded in these activist groups, these religious left activist groups that could be the great lesson for the left in general for how to cooperate and get along and, you know, and, and push for change. I will also note that there are some who say that's in some ways a marriage of convenience. In one of the chapters, I kind of outline the development of the Moral Mondays campaign in North Carolina under William Barber. And he kind of refers to uh, what he calls fusion organizing or fusionist organizing which has a very specific historical uh, meaning in North Carolina, but in practice kind of means exactly what you're saying, which is that these groups, both religious and secular, both you know, specific to one issue and those who are broad are all showing up in the same place, protesting the same thing. And that was because they had this common enemy or common cause that was the state legislator of North Carolina that was equally affecting um, all of their different issue spaces and concerns because they were passing laws that affected Many of them. That's when we kind of talk about intersectionality, the idea that multiple different groups can be affected by the same system. Like that's what that would kind of push them into the same space. Similarly, the election of Donald Trump. Um, I have a line in the book where William Barber, you know, they to be clear, the, the Moral Mondays movement did is credited with helping unseat the Republican governor in the state of North Carolina and was one of the bright spots for Democrats um, on election night in 2016. But of course, Donald Trump was also elected that night, which was not a bright spot for Democrats. And I have this line in my book where William Barber called up one of his associates and said he'd been the next morning after the election and said he'd been reading scripture that morning and that he came to the recognition that, quote, America is North Carolina now. And what I took that to mean is that now there is, you know, the, the, the systems that they were kind of fighting at a state level in North Carolina, they were now fighting at a national level. And that instantly across the board, um, the election of Donald Trump saw this bridge building effort um, between different movement leaders and different issue orga um, issue based organizations, like their, their bridge building efforts, efforts accelerated massively. You saw all this cooperation, you saw all these people showing up to the same protests because they felt equally affected by Trump's election. And again, it is an open question whether or not that energy can survive in a post-Trump era, in a post-Trump world, or whether those groups would return to kind of fighting their own battles um, at best or at worst, 
you know, in return to um, maybe infighting or fighting over the same resources. So I think the jury's still out about whether or not um, what has happened on the religious left and arguably the left in general under Trump can survive without him. Jack, there's a passage that I want to read to you from your book. It's in chapter five, and I'll just read it to you. It says, faith leaders also begin to take seriously the spirituality of unaffiliated activists, while many demonstrators remained overtly secular. Spiritual leaders recognize that activism and the communities it creates could be, for some, a form of faith. Do you care to comment any further on that dynamic and how we see that coalition between the unaffiliated and the religious minded as we move forward? I'm glad you pulled that out because it actually kind of ends up working in two different directions. One of them is actually embedded in an answer to a question about religion that Bernie Sanders gave, I believe, back in 2016 um, when he was kind of asked about his own faith. And one of the answers he kind of gave um, it wasn't really a specific, like it wasn't a very direct answer, but it was him saying that his spirituality is this understanding of the world that essentially uh, amounted to a very progressive understanding of um, you know how economics should function and how um, whether we should take care of the poor and the prisoner, et cetera, et cetera. And you saw you know that was interesting because Bernie Sanders um, was articulating what you know I believe what he called a spirituality. But but then he would also in the same breath, like, quote, Pope Francis. Right. And so it was left unclear at 2016. You know, he, he was definitely identifying um, as Jewish. But whether or not that that his faith and his spirituality looked the same as somebody who attends church every Sunday was was kind of left unanswered. And so I think there's a lot of people in the activism space who might articulate their own um, their own activism in a similar way. I actually had an interesting conversation while I was reporting on this book that did not make it into the book, but uh, I thought was a really fascinating exchange. I was in um, Hawaii at this Mauna Kea protest on the top of a mountain in um, Hawaii's Big Island, where a group of indigenous activists were protesting the erection of this um, telescope that they saw as desecrating um, not only in the environment, but in so doing, uh, a, a mountain that they believed to be sacred. And among the people who were there with them in this encampment that they'd set up to block uh, these construction vehicles from entering their, that sacred space were, these dem- was the, were the Democratic Socialists of Honolulu. And they welcomed the men in this large ceremony. And I pulled aside one of the, the leader of that group and kind of asked him some questions and was kind of asking him about his experience there. And at the end, I kind of asked him, I said, you know, are you a person of faith? And he was like, you know, I normally wouldn't have done, I have answered that question um, as anything other than saying I'm an atheist. But then I remember this part, he said, now I answer that kind of with a question mark. And he explained that while he would probably still identify as an atheist or agnostic, um, the act of participating in this indigenous protest, which was deeply spiritual, they would pray and dance at least three times a day, including them face turning and facing the mountain. He said the act of doing that every day actually kind of really changed something in him. It really kind of affected him in ways um, that he didn't expect. Now, that doesn't mean that he necessarily converted to a faith, but it does end up being this interesting way of looking at um, spirituality, perhaps, if that's the word people might use for it. But it does seem to be an unexplored element that seems that I kept running into in activist spaces. Similarly, in the other direction, and I do talk about this in in the last chapter of my book, there are many people of faith who participate in these religious left protests and demonstrations 
for whom um, there is very little, if any, distinction between activism and faith. Many see the um, see activism as an expression of faith. Showing up to a protest is a a, a holy act to them, and and so like for them, you know, that's not something to be seen as distinct or explained away from one's faith. It is part of worship in some instances, quite literally. And so I think both of those different expressions, both of those different ideas literally inhabit the same space in the kind of the protests and demonstrations that I got to witness while reporting out this book. But I think there's a lot more to explore there. Jack, the real issue is not after the election, but it is right now before the election. Will what appears to be a kind of newfound clout or power or activism of the religious left be a factor and change the game as far as uh, the presidency is concerned? If you're talking about Election Day 2020, I think, you know, I, I have I, like many journalists, am, am hesitant to make firm predictions because <laughs> we've, we've all learned that that is an inexact science to say the best. But you know, I will say that the the, the thing that I know noticed um, this go round is, you know, particularly with Joe Biden's success in the state of South Carolina, and that really leaned heavily on the votes of Black voters in general and African American Protestants in particular. And I think that the margins of victory for Trump in 2016 were so small that means that there's a lot of potential ways to get across the finish line for a victory for Democrats. And I think many faith advocates argue that if, you, if you're going to get there, one, you still need those same votes that Joe Biden was winning during the primary. You still need African-American Protestants to show up in droves in those three states I mentioned and, uh, and other places across the country. And you probably also need to in Michigan in particular, where you have a pretty large Muslim population outside of Detroit. You really want to help run up the score in that state, which Donald Trump barely won in 2016 and might pay dividends to really push um, and do outreach to those Muslim American voters in that section of the state. I think that the easiest way to think about this is I, is I think democratic strategists are looking at the 2020 election with less about taking a hammer and more with a scalpel, you know, like really trying to you know, run up the margins as, as much as they can with each individual group. And from where I sit, I know the Democratic Party has now hired um, a faith outreach director, which they didn't have in 2016. They didn't have anyone dedicated to faith outreach in 2016. They had, you know, they, they had one in 2012 and then it had evaporated. But now they have now rehired actually the same person they had in 2012. Um, so I know that the party is dedicating resources to this. I know that Joe Biden has shown a proclivity for, um, you know, prioritizing this. And he's learning from Barack Obama, who had arguably the largest faith outreach team in modern democratic history when he ran for president in 2000. And eight, and so I would expect that a lot of the leaders that you've been seeing who, from the religious left, who've been at the forefront, the tip of the spear of the resistance movement over the past few years, I would be really surprised if they're not necessarily endorsing a candidate per se. They will absolutely be pushing for the demographics that tend to fall under their influence or their you know their congregations, pushing them to turn out on election day. And, and if they're able to do that, the math could very easily add up in Joe Biden's favor. Jack, there's a, obviously a lot to talk about in this important subject, and we expect you to come back again as we get closer to the election and also to continue to fill us in on this, uh, the progressive religious political movement. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. 
Our guest was Religion News Service political correspondent Jack Jenkins. His book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics, and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country is available now. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is the producer, with production assistance from Jonathan Smith. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.